This is Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter with Montgomery Community Media. And I'm talking today with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's in charge of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, one of the institutes that makes up the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. And you've been at that post for 35 years, correct? That's correct. Dr. Fauci is an immunologist and made significant contributions to our understanding of the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, as well as acquired immune deficiency syndrome, or AIDS. At NIAID, he oversees research into all sorts of nasty diseases, including Ebola and Zika. Welcome, Dr. Fauci. Good to be with you. There's a lot to talk about with HIV, with Ebola and Zika. But first, I'd like to ask you about the management of science, particularly toward a specific goal. As I recall, the late 1980s, you were helping to marshal the resources to help combat AIDS, not just research it yourself, but to lead others into the research as well. Right. You're not an oncologist, and maybe this question isn't entirely fair, but can we do the same thing with cancer or multiple sclerosis or Alzheimer's disease, or was, or was HIV and AIDS unique in some way? Well, in some respects, it was unique in that it was a disease that essentially was felt to come out of nowhere. It was extremely serious. People presented very late in the course of the disease. We did not know what the disease was. We certainly didn't know what the etiological agent was, and we had no treatment for it. So during those early years, it was really uh, frightening, novel, and devastating for the people who were afflicted with this illness. We had no experts in it because nobody had any idea what it was. Certainly the infectious diseases community, people like myself, and immunologists because it was a disease that seemed and actually was destroying the body's immune system. We had never seen anything like it. So the only way that we could address this was to try and marshal a considerable amount of support because we started with nothing. Whereas when you're dealing with diseases that you have some familiarity with, even though they're very serious diseases, diseases like cancer and multiple sclerosis and diabetes and things like that, even though there was a lot of support for that, in the beginning with HIV, there was no support because there was no one who was an expert in something that no one had any experience with. So I was involved from the very beginning. I saw this as something that would turn into a very serious issue. Unfortunately, my prediction was correct. You know, when it went from a handful of cases among gay men that were first reported from the West Coast in Los Angeles and San Francisco and then in New York City to essentially be something that was spread throughout the world with a concentration in the developing world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And right now, you know, you fast forward 38 and a half years because the first cases were reported in the summer of 1981 that we really had a public health catastrophe in our hands. So for that reason, we needed to marshal as much support as we possibly could. And fortunately, we did. I think we were a little bit slow in the beginning to get off the blocks. But when we finally did, we had now a large number of very committed investigators, both basic research and clinical investigators involved in HIV. And we've made really breathtaking progress that we now have drugs that can actually get people to lead essentially a normal life. Whereas when I first started taking care of patients with HIV in the early 1980s, it was almost, with few exceptions, a death sentence. 
Right. You've heard this statement, I'm sure. Um, I know I heard it all growing up was, uh, if we can send a man to the moon, why can't we cure cancer? And um, right. so I'm wondering, what is it that you learned fighting AIDS that we could now apply to eliminating cancer or any other disease? Yeah, I, I think you need to understand that cancer is not a single disease. There are many, many, many different types of cancers. As devastating as HIV AIDS was, it was a single virus. So you had a single target for the development of antiviral drugs that when it suppressed the virus, you can suppress the disease or prevent the disease from occurring. You have so many different types of cancer. There is some commonalities in the study of cancer as a phenomenon, as a process. You know, it's, it's really in many respects a genetic disease cancer in that genes start to mutate and then cells start to grow out of control. I think although there are some similarities between mounting an effort against a disease as serious as HIV AIDS and a whole host of diseases that fall under the broad scope and the broad umbrella of cancer, they really are quite different because of the multitudinous numbers of cancers and how different they are. Okay. Well, let's turn our focus on a disease that at least we thought had disappeared and has resurged, and that's measles. Maryland Health Department recently notched its fifth case in the state, and 20-some other states have reported measles. Are we out of the woods as far as the resurgence of measles, or do you expect to see more cases? No, unfortunately, we are not nearly out of the woods with regard to the resurgence of cases of measles because the root cause of these resurgence of cases is that people have not been vaccinating their children, and that leads to a great deal of vulnerability in the community. Uh, by the year 2000, due to the great efficacy of the vaccine against measles, we had essentially eliminated measles in the United States. There's measles in other parts of the world, and people travel because we live in a, in a world where there's a lot of travel going on from one region of the world to another. And if you have in the community a diminution in the percentage of people who are vaccinated, you can get a degree of vulnerability so that when someone either comes into the community from outside or someone who lives in a community here in the United States and travels to a place where there's measles, gets infected, and then comes back to the community in which they live, you can get the kinds of outbreaks that we are currently seeing. For example, the worst one is in New York City in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn and in certain parts of Queens where there have been almost 500 confirmed cases of measles just in that particular area. And the reason for it is very clear. It's not complicated that the percentage of people in the community that are vaccinated is low and it's below the critical level that would protect the community. If you want to essentially prevent an outbreak with measles, you have to have about 93 to 95% of the community needs to be vaccinated or protected. That gives us what we call herd immunity. And by herd immunity means that there will be people 
in the community who either cannot get vaccinated for one reason or other, they have an underlying disease that would prohibit it, or they're very young children before they get their first shot. Those people are protected by the umbrella of immunity that the so-called herd or the broader numbers of people in society protect them because it doesn't give the virus the chance to spread. But when the community protection, when there are a lot of people who are vulnerable in the community, when that occurs and measles is introduced into the community, that's when you get the kinds of outbreaks that we're seeing now. So in direct answer to your question, I would see an end to this if people began vaccinating to the extent that they should their children as well as to make sure that their own vaccine schedule is up to date. We have in society now, unfortunately, what are called anti-vaxxers or people who, for one reason or other, don't want to vaccinate their children. They usually are guided by misinformation. I mean, the biggest misinformation is that the measles vaccine causes autism, which it absolutely does not. That thought, that concept emanated from false information, fraudulent information that was put forth by a physician in the UK years ago in the 90s. And it was shown that that was completely debunked. That was fraudulent. The person was discredited and lost his medical license. And yet, because of it getting into the internet and social media, there still is that lingering spread of misinformation that sometimes frightens parents for getting their children vaccinated. And then there's this also this feeling of what you can refer to as maybe libertarianism taken to the extreme where people don't want any authority, be they civil or medical, to be telling them whether they should vaccinate their children or not. And they decide they don't want to. And that leads to the vulnerability that I mentioned. That's really the cause of the outbreaks that we're seeing now in this country. A handful of public officials, um, I know one in Germany, and I believe it was floated in uh, Rockland County, New York, outside of New York City, had floated the idea of trying to prevent unvaccinated people uh, from groups of public situations. I believe most of those ideas were shot down, but do we need to start thinking in terms of limiting our personal rights to protect us corporately? Well, it's always a sensitive issue when you talk about anything that might infringe upon the civil liberties or the personal rights of a person who does or does not want to do something within the context of themselves or their families. But you might reach a point uh, when you have almost a public health crisis, which is what the officials in Rockland County declared uh, not too long ago that they were dealing with, in their mind, was a public health emergency. And that's when they tried to put restrictions like fining people who would go into closed spaces, either with measles or who were not vaccinated that might spread measles. In New York City, Mayor de Blasio is imposing a fine on people who essentially would go into a certain place unprotected without being vaccinated. Sometimes the courts uphold that and sometimes they don't. But the bottom line is that when you're dealing with might be a medical a public health emergency, you might have to do some things that might otherwise seem coercive. No one wants to do that, but you do have a responsibility to protect the members of society, particularly the vulnerable ones who really don't have any way of protecting themselves. Two diseases that come to mind that can often have a 
can scare the crap out of people. One of them is Ebola. And not too long ago, I believe patients were brought to NIH to be right. treated for Ebola, and that caused uh, some fear in, in, in Montgomery County. When do these fears become illegitimate? Well, I think the fear that accompanied the patients that we saw here at the NIH, I actually personally took care of two of those patients who had Ebola. That's an unreasonable fear because Ebola is not spread unless you come into absolute direct contact with the infected bodily fluids of someone who's quite ill with Ebola, which is the reason why we wear those spacesuits when someone is very sick to take care of them. And that's the reason why people who are infected with Ebola almost never have the opportunity to really travel when they're infected, because by the time you're able to transmit the infection, you're really very, very ill. So the idea that you might spread it through casual contact with someone who looks well and feels well actually does not happen. So although you have to be vigilant to make sure that if someone does have Ebola, that you get them to the proper containment facility and give them the proper care the way we did here back several years ago when we took care of Ebola patients, the threat to society really is not there if you do things correctly, which we did. So there was back then a lot of concern that there was going to be an outbreak, the likes of which we saw in West Africa. And, and as obviously, as history has shown us, that certainly did not occur at all, nor would it have occurred because you know what you're doing when you take care of someone with Ebola. Another disease that seems to scare people, but I, I don't know that the numbers are founded, at least in this country, and that's Zika. Um, right. If my research is correct, there were seven cases in the continental U.S. last year. It's right. not mosquito season, so maybe we still have time to put off any fears we do have, but is there any real threat to that disease in this country? Whenever you get, first of all, there is very little Zika activity currently in South America and the Caribbean, where we had the explosion of Zika cases several years ago. So right now, there's very little risk anywhere, even in the areas where there used to be a problem. But getting back to the situation in the United States, what we saw several years ago uh, when we had the Zika outbreak, there were travel-related cases. And there were several of these, quite a few, because there's a great deal of travel between North America and South America and the Caribbean. So there were people who lived in the United States, went to South America or the Caribbean on a vacation or for business, got infected and came back, and the disease was manifested when they got back into the United States. When you have travel-related cases, since we also have, particularly in certain southern regions of the country, we could have it even further than that, but concentrated in southern regions of the country, you have the mosquito vector that's capable of transmitting Zika. That's why we saw a handful of cases that actually got Zika, even though they never left the continental United States. Despite the fact that there were many, many cases that were travel-related, we did have a few cases of people who got bit by a mosquito 
who bit someone who got their infection in the Caribbean or in South America. But good mosquito control, the way we implemented back when we had these cases that occurred in the continental U.S., were able to very effectively prevent the widespread of Zika. So although you must be vigilant, you have to do things like mosquito control, mosquito avoidance, there was not a threat of an overwhelming occurrence of an outbreak the way they had in Brazil, which was really quite serious and even in some places in the Caribbean. So given the fact that we have mosquitoes that are capable of transmitting Zika, and given the fact that we live geographically close to a place where there's a lot of travel and there is historically has been Zika, we always have to stay heads up and be vigilant the way we were during the outbreak. Right. Every year we get nagged to get our flu shots. I think there were some headlines earlier in the year that um, it was a pretty bad flu year, and yet um, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about it lately. I guess it's the flu season's over. Is the shot still the best way to combat flu, or is there anything else? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, obviously getting vaccinated is overwhelmingly the best way to protect yourself against flu. It isn't a perfect vaccine. It's not certainly not as effective as some of the more effective vaccines, but it is always better to get vaccinated than not to get vaccinated because not only could it protect you against infection, if you do get infected and you've been vaccinated, it could prevent you from getting serious disease that might require hospitalization. Two years ago, in the 2017-2018 season, we had a very, very bad flu season, the worst that we had since we were recording seasonal influenza. It wasn't a pandemic, but it was a very bad flu season. This year, the 2018-2019 season, we started off with one kind of virus, the H1N1, which is never really as severe as the H3N2, and we did okay, but towards the end of the season, the middle to end of the season, it switched over to H3N2, which caused more diseases than we were seeing in the beginning of the season. So we didn't have exactly a light year at all this year. We, we had a year that was significant. Uh, it was a significant season. It wasn't as bad as the really worst season we had in 2017-18. But again, it, it really brings up the point that we're trying to develop better vaccines that are good against essentially any drifting strain of flu. One of the problems with flu is that it is a unique virus in that it tends to what we call drift or change a bit from season to season, which requires getting a yearly flu shot. That is relatively unique. When you look at other viruses that are vaccine preventable, like measles, mumps, rubella, polio, uh, hepatitis, you don't have to get a shot every year for that, but with flu, you do. So our hope is to develop a vaccine that would remove that requirement and allow you to get vaccinated and that even when the flu changes a bit from season to season, the vaccine that you got would protect you against any of those iterations of the flu. And did you get your flu shot? I did. I get it every year. Okay. You know, there are a handful of other diseases that are pretty scary. Dengue fever, Lassa fever, the Hantavirus. Are, are any of these diseases increasing to, to the point where 
we need to be worried about them, or are they still fairly, uh, the numbers are low in, in remote places that somebody walking down um, Wisconsin Avenue in front of NIH has to worry about the yeah, guy sneezing Yeah, I mean, next the diseases him. you're referring to are generally diseases like dengue is not a disease that's at all prevalent in the United States. It's a disease that was you know, seen in different parts of the world in Asia. There's now a considerable amount of dengue in South America and in some places in the Caribbean. That's one of the reasons why we're trying to develop good vaccines against these. But if you are, as you say, walking down the street in Bethesda or up in Rockville, I don't think dengue should be one of the things you should be worried about. Okay. (laughs) But are the numbers globally increasing? You know, they wax and wane. I mean, we had a situation where dengue uh, in South America was really flagrant, and then it sort of went down a little and then it rebounded back. Whenever you have diseases that are vector-borne, namely are borne by mosquitoes or other types of, of insects, it really depends on a variety of conditions. And so it isn't like you get the same amount of disease each year. And so it's tough to say, is it going up, is it going down, except to say that it's still around. So dengue clearly is a problem. Some years it's less than it is than other years, but it's still a problem. Part of the reason why I ask the question like that is because these are two infections that are, I guess, they may be trivial compared to some of the more exotic ones, but they do seem to be increasing, and that's strep throat and ear infections. It seems like more and more people every, just from my own observation, it seems like strep throat is becoming more common. And it's been years since I was a kid, but I don't remember anybody having an ear infection when I was a kid, and now it seems like every kid has to go through a round of ear infections. What do you think's behind that? You know, I think your personal experience doesn't necessarily match the data. I mean, ear infections have been around for a while. There may be an increase in allergies that get stuffed upper airways, winding up getting people ear infections, but we really are not seeing a a major, major increase in any of that. It's always been prevalent. You may just be noticing a bit more. Well, okay. Let's hope so. (laughs) And um, I have to ask you this, and I'm I'm sure it's a a silly question from your point of view, but these diseases are always like the bad guy on uh, on lots of uh, Hollywood movies. Do they ever get anything right when when you see this on uh, these things? Uh, You mean in the movies? Yeah. You know, they often are a little bit hyperbolic. They exaggerate things, you know, like when you see the movies that infections are going to come and wipe everybody out. Uh, that that doesn't happen. Infections are serious. Uh, sometimes you get outbreaks you have to take seriously. But when you see things in, in motion pictures, they tend for the purposes of drama, making it a little bit worse than it is. And I have to ask this one last question. I don't know if you saw the story. The preface to this has nothing to do with disease, but it, I think it illustrates the point I'm trying to make. There's a story a couple of weeks ago that Maryland blue crabs have shown up in Spanish waterways, and because there's no real predators, the crabs are taking over. It seems to be that that's kind of the way some of these diseases work. Is that fair to say? You know, you better give an example of what disease you're, you're talking about. Well, there are niches for diseases that I wouldn't call them predator diseases. I mean, we have emerging and re-emerging infections might be the closest analogy to what you're talking about. I mean, we think that we know the, the whole scope of infectious diseases that are challenging us. And then often, sometimes it's a trivial curiosity, but sometimes it's a disease that has major public health impact. 
But emerging and re-emerging diseases continue to occur. For example, there was no chikungunya, which is a significant disease that spread by mosquitoes in the Caribbean until 2013. We didn't have any West Nile virus in the United States until the late 1990s. It had been in the Middle East and in Africa forever. And then one day, somebody, a bird or a person or a mosquito, got on a plane and landed at Kennedy Airport in New York. And then all of a sudden, we now have West Nile virus in the United States. So I think emerging and re-emerging infections are the kinds of things that are kind of analogous to what you're talking about. Well, and what I'm trying to ask is, as we become a more global society, how can we prevent these diseases from showing up on our back door? I don't think you could prevent them from showing up, but what you can do is prevent them from turning into an outbreak. And that is by good infection control, developing vaccines against these types of things. Diseases will continue to emerge and reemerge. That's just a phenomenon of how you exist together with the microbes on the planet. They will continue to emerge and reemerge. It's preventing them from becoming a serious outbreak. That's the trick. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Fauci. This has been fascinating. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. It's, a, it's my pleasure. Good to be with you. All right. This has been right. Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter with Montgomery Community Media. I've been talking with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's with the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Our engineer today was uh, Ben Romero, and our executive producer is Gaynell Evans. Join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.